phasing out coal in the southeast of Europe? Hmm, that's the question. Interview with Iwana Chuta, episode 68. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Iwana Chuta, energy coordinator at the CE Bankwatch Network. We'll be speaking with her about the southeast of Europe. In general, historical terms, we can use the word Balkans. We can update that more specifically for the former Yugoslav republics and call it Western Balkans. And even more specifically, we look at the neighborhood, I would say, the southeast of Europe with Romania, Bulgaria, and of course, Albania. In this episode, we're going to discuss the role of the Energy Community Treaty. This is why the geographic context and which countries belong is important to understand. This is really important when we talk about the EU and how the EU and I would even say the United States are engaged in countries in the southeast of Europe. As Ioana tells us at the start, there there was and still is great interest in building coal-fired power plants. So as crazy as that sounds to some people, like me, there's still governments that want to build coal. And uh, yeah, even backed up by China and other international institutions. But I think what Iwana tells us and what we reflect on in this episode is how times have changed, actually. So now maybe it is more possible to prevent these coal-fired power plants from being built than just a few years ago. So it really does say a lot. But also says a lot about governments like China, Serbia, and Bosnia-Herzegovina who actually see coal as a viable energy source. And Bankwatch, as we learn, is working hard to prevent financing to build new facilities to ensure a reduction of emissions and prompt investment into alternative energy technologies. So I bring it up and it's a great point, I think, that if the banks are not financing coal, hopefully they're financing some other energy, either reduction technology or renewable energy technologies. At the beginning of the episode, Iwana describes how she became involved in environmental issues, first with nuclear power, then fighting for coal phase out. The episode provides context to understand the support for fossil fuel in the region, how it was there, why it was there, and how it shifted over time, or yeah, even in some places hasn't really changed. The importance of the Balkans lies in the necessity to bring them along in Europe's energy transition. So uh, I recently was just in Bucharest, and I'll be going back to Croatia as well, and really learning more about the region. Uh, And this is really important because we can't have the energy transition in Europe without involving the Balkans, which is really one of the poorest and I don't say deprived regions, just it, it's, a, it's a magnificent region to go and visit and to see, and it's amazing the nature there. Just it really has these challenges, and the EU and other international donors really have to help on the government and the governance side to ensure that the environment is protected in a lot of these places, and the right, I would say, energy technologies that are forward-looking and forward-leaning are utilized rather than looking back at coal or fossil fuels as an option, such as gas. And we talk about the role that EU plays in maybe promoting gas in the region. Now we can start to say that there's geopolitical realities in play now, and hopefully maybe that, that is changing the region. Why would you build new gas infrastructure? Anyways, maybe I'm becoming more ra- more radical on this podcast about what the solutions are. And it's not fossil fuels. As Ioana points out, even firewood is increasing in price in the region. And relying on old technologies and resources not, does not provide households or industry a way forward in this economically deprived region. The lowest cost generation source is not coal. you got to look long term on this. So there's a tremendous need to change the ways of thinking. And this is really important when we talk about the region. Uh, the way of thinking about what we can do now and where are things headed and how the money that is spent now, what is that spent on and how does that contribute towards the energy transition. This episode and some future episodes, as I mentioned, are looking at Romania and Croatia. I'm actually just recording this while I'm in Estonia. So we have some really interesting episodes coming out uh, over the next few weeks or even few months doing a lot of 
uh, recording and a lot of meeting with different people on research. And I have to say this is all possible because the Open Society University Network uh, Senior Fellowship that I hold at Chatham House in 2022. They are helping fund <laughs> this podcast, or at least the travel and the interview portions of it. And it's been a tremendous experience, and I'm really excited about how things are, are going and the experts I have lined up to talk to. Of course, this all feeds into my academic research uh, that will be worked on in 2023. And I have to give out a shout-out to Roxana Bukata. Uh, she's doing her PhD at Central European University with me, and she contributed towards lining up this interview and some future interviews that we have coming out too. So without her knowledge of Romanian uh, environmental and energy experts, uh, some of these interviews would not have been possible. So I have to give a shout out for her and thank her very much for, for her work and actually for everyone for agreeing to be interviewed on this podcast. It's always an amazing experience, not just interviewing people but getting people willing to come on to the podcast and actually having other people help out line up these guests so uh, i want to thank everyone that contributes to making the podcast happen so finally the intent so what are we doing here what are you listening to the intent at least that i hope of the my energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our energy transition towards a greener future now for this week's episode I'm here today with Iwana Chuta. She's the energy coordinator at CEE Bankwatch Network, focused on the on the Balkan. So, Iwana, I just want to welcome you to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. I'm going to start off uh, with a with a question. I'd really like to know about your background and how how did you become involved with uh, Bankwatch? I studied journalism, and I was. Growing up, I was convinced that this was what I wanted to do my entire life. And then, sure enough, I only did maybe a couple of years of reporting. And then I discovered the topic of climate change. It was something that I, I was expected to, to report on one day. I think it was one of the first uh, conference of the parties, the COPs, that were being covered by, by Romanian media. It really It really caught my eye. And then... I was looking for NGOs in Romania who were working on on climate change, and I found one, and I went there to to work as a as a comms person because I thought, you know, my my training would be uh, in communication and in public relations. But soon after I joined, um, there was an active campaign um, against the Belenev nuclear power plant in Bulgaria. Like right on the other side of the Danube from Zimnica in Romania. So I got involved with the community there and collecting signatures and doing all these kind of campaigning on the ground. That's when I got into activism and being part of an environmental NGO. And then when I when I joined Bankwatch, um, it was also there was that was 2013, late 2013. There was a, a wave of coal power generation appearing together with the new concept of China plus 16 in the region. So it was an initiative, the, the early days of the One Belt, One Road initiative led by China. So it came with, with a lot of coal projects for Central Eastern Europe and Southeast Europe. So um, the Western Balkans were and still are um, a hotspot for new coal capacity. And it was, for me, outrageous in 2013 when there was like consensus in the scientific community that coal is and basically fossil fuels are contributing to the acceleration of climate change. And yeah, it was outrageous that some countries would consider, Romania included, uh, would would still consider um, building new coal capacity. So that's how I got involved, and I've been um, I've been around for about eight years now in Bankwatch. Okay, great. Uh, I want I'm gonna definitely follow up with the question, and I'm gonna say it so I don't forget it. Is is um, why why is the region looking at coal or was looking at coal? But my my follow up question is, and to help explain the context here, is about Bankwatch and Bankwatch Network. Um, could you describe the organization and, and what it does and its focus? Bankwatch is looking at public finance 
in the sense that it is preventing public finance from being spent on projects that are harmful for people and the environment. We traditionally follow public banks, such as the European Investment Bank or the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and EU funds, of which there are a lot lately. So this is basically the core of the work in Bankwatch. We are quite focused on the energy sector as one of the biggest contributors to um, climate change and to greenhouse gas emissions, um, not just electricity in the energy sector, but we're also looking um, at district heating lately. Um, but yeah, there, there are colleagues of mine who are working on local policies such as resilient cities and with the uh, frontline defenders in, in countries such as in, uh, in Central Asia um, for you know, human rights and democracy and, and so on, all kind of connected with, with how public banks are, are playing a role in the development of democracy and, and societies, basically. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we talk about coal and coal-fired power plants, then government financing plays a, a strong role in that. Is that right? Um, yeah, in the Western Balkans, at least uh, most of the most of the projects that were part of this One Belt, One Road initiative and were um, out for financing for Chinese public money, they all required public guarantees from the governments, which is allowed under very strict conditions. Many of the projects that we follow um, currently, the the best known now, I think, is, is Tuzla 7 in Bosnia and Herzegovina. This was proven to be illegal state aid uh, offered by the by the Bosnian state under the the legislation of the Energy Community Treaty, which basically transfers EU legislation on environment and state aid. Okay. Yes. I feel like are explaining what the energy community is. Yes, and that's that's exactly one of my questions. But can I I want to like kind of bring home and ask you a question? This one belt, one road initiative, because I think people not familiar with that won't won't know know that. And then I definitely want to get back to the energy community. Um, but the one belt, I'll just say. Uh, so from an observation point of view, uh, I went to Montenegro and drove there this summer through Serbia and Montenegro, and I noticed that the highway is was mm -hmm. built with by the Chinese. So these initiatives are actually real. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And it's not just the energy sector. It's also transport and transfer of, of goods. Basically, it's um, it's China's way of rebuilding the old Silk Road, um, finding its way for, for its um, products, um, technology, and even labor um, to, to be exported from China to the EU. And obviously through the Balkans, um, through the Western Balkans, <clears throat> it was um, slightly easier because of the country's, let's say a bit more flexible understanding of the rule of law and availability to you know, not apply legislation 100% as um, maybe some of the European countries, some of the, the EU member countries would have done. Well, I'll just say an example would be the Belgrade to Budapest ra Railway, which is financed by mm -hmm. the Chinese. And the Hungarian government has put that <laughs> classified as a like top secret for like 100 years. I, and I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say 100 years. So people mm -hmm. can't find out what are the financial conditions, but the payback period, I think, is like 999 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, the, the Hungarian, uh, we could say the Hungarian kingdom is a thousand years old, but yeah, hopefully it, maybe <laughs> it lasts another thousand years and then people can get their money back. But okay, okay, that was a little but a side note, but but it, it and you hit on this this point, which is really important about how legislation or maybe EU legislation or EU directives are transposed and kind of this 
I'll say is you can correct me, but I'll say it's this gray area or reinterpretation of the rules and how it's done in some of these countries. And maybe if you explain the role of the energy community and then I'll, I'll say maybe the second part of that would be about the, the role of the EU in the energy community. So, mm -hmm. so what is what is the energy community? Yeah, the, the Energy Community Treaty uh, is something that has been in force already since 2006. Basically, it was established um, so that the EU internal energy market rules and principles would, would spread to countries of Southeast Europe. At the time, also Romania and Bulgaria and Croatia were, were part of the energy community because they were not in the EU yet. Um, so you can say it's, I, I like to refer to, to the energy community as kind of a waiting room for countries until they get uh, into the EU. Um, but it's a waiting room which comes with, with some, some rules. They have to, to apply um, EU aki in the energy sector. Um, so being members of the energy community uh, helps the countries prepare for when they will be full members of the EU. Um, so they also have to, to comply with certain environmental laws. And as of late 2020, the Western Balkan six countries signed the SOFIA declaration on the green agenda for the Western Balkans, for instance. And this means that they've they formally committed to adopt EU's climate law so they've committed to decarbonization by 2050, um, plus a, a host of other tasks related to areas such as um, circular economy and depollution. So there is, we have these ups and, and downs and in, in political uh, will and political significance, if you, if you like, like this SOFIA declaration. But then we come to actual implementation of the legislation, which is there. And this is really, um, it's, it's quite problematic for the countries um, because there are, there are currently no sanctions for countries of the West or of the energy community who do not comply with, with the legislation that is transposed. Um, so we have cases such as the Plievlia power plant in Montenegro, which has been operating beyond its 20,000 hours. Um, it's, it's a derogation under the large combustion plants directive, which allows the, the, the power plant to, to work without any environmental improvements until it hits this 20,000 hour mark. Um, and after that, either it, it's retrofitted completely and it's com it is it becomes compliant with the with the legislation, with the the pollution limits, or it closes down. So Plevia has been operating illegally for over a year and a half, um, and there is um, basically no monetary sanction that would be dissuasive and proportional to the damage that this this pollution is producing to to the environment and to people living in Montenegro and beyond mm -hmm. so then, yeah no 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 this is a great point and and on this like why are there no sanctions uh for not complying with what is agreed to by the within the energy community framework because there this has been subject to, to treaty amendments um, in the last couple of years and such decisions, first of all, such such a proposal to, um, to adopt monetary sanctions, for instance, would have to come by the, would have to come from the European Commission. This is in the mandate. This is how the whole energy community treaty is set up. And yeah, this this did come from from the commission from DG Energy, but then the countries that it concerns, so Western Balkan countries plus Moldova, Ukraine, and Georgia, all the members of the energy community, uh, would need to vote on it. So it's 
you know, um, this is the problem. It has to be voted unanimously. So you basically have in the room countries who are supposed to um, approve their own sanctions. And there were a few rounds of negotiations how how to calculate such such monetary sanctions. Um, there was no no agreement, and this is where we are. Mm -hmm. the The topic has been dragging for for ages, and more urgent things appeared. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I'm going to ask a leading question because I actually have to say that I don't remember the, what year it was. Maybe it was 2006, seven, seven or eight. I think I was in uh, at a previous job I had. I was working at Energy Research Institute in Budapest, and I was able to attend one of these forums where, th yeah, they were encouraging people to work together, the TSOs to work together on, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, just on the cross-border rules and regulations all this type of stuff on the on the interconnectors i think i wrote a report about it but what struck me was not interviewing people or writing about it but actually attending the the meeting in person and seeing how unhappy everybody was and and <laughs> bulgaria the and usually they would just say yes well it was really the united states and the european commission or the representatives at least kind of pushing them to cooperate and it was Bulgaria that was always saying, well, no, we, we have to go back home and we have to ask whether we can say yes to this or not. So um, and, and I think maybe if we can describe the history of of um, of, of the, the history, we could say maybe Yugoslavia, the breakup of the Yugoslavia. I mean, could you maybe provide some context of why the energy community w was created and the difficulty of getting this cooperation among members? That's that's the paradox. I mean, <clears throat> uh, technically, because all of these countries of the Western Balkans were once the same country, technically, um, energy flows are very easy to realize in in the region. There are they were once part of the same national energy grid, so they they are interconnected. Um, yeah, I think maybe the the biggest um, barrier now to to cooperation is this kind of competitive. Like countries of the Western Balkans like to compare and compete. So I think on the one hand, yeah, there is a bit of a a bit of a dispute for domination in the region. Who has the the most power and who can be maybe my my own personal observations from from such meetings is who can be the most cynical and kind of um <laughs> which of the countries has it worse you know to to compare with the others and has to to obtain better um or or more benefits from whoever is it the the european commission or certain donor institutions so I think everybody paints a, a bleaker picture than than in reality. Yeah, because I mean, then there's the oh, the, the trading market, the day ahead market that's formed, and so like technically these things can can operate because it, that's how it was created. Well, for many of these countries, not all, but for many, right? They they are highly interconnected, and for the former Yugoslav republics, um, they were all interconnected into one single energy mm -hmm. system. And so it totally technically worked. You're right. And I mean, even the, um, I forget the name of the nuclear power plant in Croatia, but that's jointly owned by Croatia, Croatia or no, sorry, Slovenia, Slovenia, Slovenia and Croatia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it shows the, the level of cooperation that historically was there and still has to be there as well. Um, and okay, maybe, maybe we move on a bit about uh, the, the coal fire power plant. And for, for example, in Bosnia, Herzegovina, um, you mentioned that power plant. I don't remember the name, but um, I, I've heard about this in the past. Maybe could you give some backstory to that and why why did it go ahead? It's 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 a brand new power plant. Is it? Could you discuss that? Um, actually, the the one that I referred to earlier, Tuzla Seven, that is that has still not happened, and we're kind of hopeful that it will not materialize. Um, there is, however, 
one coal power plant in Bosnia in the in, Repu in the entity of Republika Srpska, uh, which is called Stanari, and which started operating in 2018, I think. Um, so this is basically the only only power plant, the, the only coal power plant that actually got constructed and was put into operation in in 2016. Um, so this one will actually be online for as long as it can. Um, Tuzla 7, on the other hand, um, was was met on with opposition from the local community. Um, it was met with complaints to the energy community's dispute settlement mechanism over environmental concerns, but also over um, state aid concerns. Um, and quite importantly, during, you know, the, the, the financing deal has been signed for Tuzla with, with China Exim Bank um, quite a long time ago. Um, but what happened in the, in the interim is the China's basically announcement at the um, UN General Assembly two years ago about not financing new coal projects anymore. Um, and also General Electric's uh, phase out of or, or pulling out of coal projects. So General Electric would have been one of the technology suppliers in the Tuzla 7 project. So it's it's looking quite uh, hopeful that the that this project will not materialize in the end. And yeah, I mean, also renewables in in Bosnia have started picking up in the in the recent months. I mean, since since last year, with um, with changes to energy legislation, we we noticed quite an uptick in prosumers and small scale renewables that are that is coming online. Uh -huh. Oh, great. I mean, and um, is is that example Bosnia and Herzegovina? Is it uh, one of the example countries or are there other countries that show that small scale solar can really be deployed? Are there other countries in the region that that have specific programs that are looking successful? You know, countries have taken turns in the last couple of years to to enjoy being the regional champion for for a moment, only for their efforts to stagnate later. I think North Macedonia was the first example, and I was actually I was in a meeting of uh, coal regions in transition the other day for um, so just transition of coal mining regions um, in the Western Balkans and, and the example of North Macedonia did come up a lot. Uh, this is obviously it's um, large scale solar um, on degraded land, basically on old depleted coal mines and, and the ash disposal sites. Um, I think when it comes to prosumers and small scale solar. Um, it's indeed uh, Bosnia who is um, looking and who's appearing to be the temporary champion in the region. As I said, we, I, I don't think we can we can hold any of the countries uh, for too long in this position. Okay. Something always happens. Uh, something because I'm, I'm in Romania right now, as you know, in Bucharest. And um... Yeah, because in the past here, there was deployment of wind and solar at a large scale, and then it hasn't happened in a long time. Is, is that what you mean, where, where the, the legislation's changed, and then there's a spurt of deployment, and then the legislation's changed again, or something happens, and then it kind of stops? Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and um, the, the role that the state aid plays, uh, maybe we can um, speak more generally about that. Um, and coal-fired power plants in general um, is, I know the answer, but, or I think I know the answer, but I, I'm interested to know is like, uh, can coal-fired power plants be competitive on, on a market-based, based on market-based basis? 
and by private investors. Why why do why does state aid need to be given to coal fired power plants? <laughs> yeah, I I don't see any kind of private company that would um, still put its money in coal these days. Um, irrespective, I mean, it, it does look like coal is making a comeback these days, but it, I'm absolutely convinced it's it's temporary. Um, so this is. This is, I think, the the starting point. I don't, I don't see how a private company would even consider that. So this is what is different in the Western Balkans from Western Europe. Let's say, like all of these energy, or the majority of the the energy utilities are state owned. So then it's the state that that drives its own energy policies and that um, makes financial allocations and um, it kind of encourages one company over over the other to um, develop projects. So most of the times it's either or it has been either coal-fired energy or hydropower as the staple energy supply, whereas um, renewables would be somewhere some something more like you know the salad on the side that is nice to have but yeah we don't have to again irrespective of commitments to have to meet renewables targets under the energy community treaty as eu countries do as well um so yeah um a lot of the countries haven't met their their 2020 renewable energy targets uh, or if they have they have because they fiddled a bit with the statistics um so so as to to kind of biomass play more than than other sources oh yes right, it's, right. Quite, it's quite fascinating yeah count count the people burning firewood as yeah biomass and contributing towards the renewable energy targets yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Um. Okay. But then let me follow up is if it's only the state owned companies with the government support, uh, why are government governments supporting the, or where are, I mean, yeah, let me, let me ask the question and then let me put the, the, the conditionality on it. Like, why are they, why are governments supporting coal fired power plants? Um, but are we also at a, maybe a key point in this transition where this this support is wavering or more difficult to supply. Yes, I think we've come to a fork in the road where support to coal is really fading in the region. Basically, there are, you know, when I started in this position eight years ago, all the countries of the Western Balkans had at least one coal project on their wish list. Now it's only Bosnia and Serbia who are actively pursuing some, some coal-fired generation still. And I think um, it's, it's in the case of Serbia, I think it's because it does have a lot of, of coal already in its generation. And for ages, we kept hearing that, that Serbia had huge deposits of coal um, but here we are after the winter of 2021, 2022, we see that Serbia is even having trouble um, supplying coal for its existing coal power plant. So it ended importing coal from, can you imagine Serbia importing coal from Montenegro or from Bulgaria or from Bosnia? So um, it's availability of the resource is going down and it's going down quite fast. Um, and I think indeed the, the competitiveness, it, it's starting to, to become visible. So in, in Serbia, I'm, I think transition will be a bit more difficult than in other countries, but obviously not uh, impossible because it has this, this large share of, of coal in its mix. Um, but for Bosnia, what, we what we notice is Bosnia has been making quite a lot of profit from um, exporting its electricity to to EU countries. Um, 
mostly to to Croatia. Mm -hmm. So because you know the the prices for electricity in in the country are heavily regulated um energy utilities would not be able to to, to keep their come to to keep themselves alive only by selling electricity at this regulated price on the domestic market so then they need to to make these exports and there was a there was a story in Reuters the other day saying that price of electricity on the export like on on the market uh, basically the the price at which electricity is being sold is sometimes even 30 times bigger than the regulated price Holy um so that's probably one of the reasons why uh governments in the in these two countries think coal still still has a role to play however um and this is something that we've we've started following recently um the the space is shrinking even for electricity exports so there's the carbon border adjustment mechanism that is part of the eu emission trading scheme um package that is now uh being negotiated in in the within the european parliament and council and commission either the carbon border adjustment mechanism will come online in in 2025 or 2026 and so the countries will need to pay to the eu for the electricity for the carbon footprint of the electricity that they export or the 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 way to to avoid this mechanism would be to adopt a domestic or a regional carbon pricing um carbon pricing mechanism that would ensure that the the revenue comes back to to the country. So yeah, I think I I went a bit overboard with answering your question. No, but, no, no, no. You you um, totally did not. No, no, no. It was it's really good. Um, and then this back brings back the corporate. Um, sorry, the carbon border adjustment. Wait, the CBM, right? Uh, the carbon. What is it? Carbon. Yeah. yeah border. Border adjustment, adjustment mechanism. Mechanism. Okay. Um. And so that, yeah, this would make it more expensive for, and this applies not just to electricity, well, imports into the EU, but also goods um, coming into the EU as, as well. Um, my, my question is, uh, and it kind of goes back to our discussion on the energy community, is how much influence does the EU have? And we can maybe just be in general about energy policy in the region and, and this push towards renewable because for example, if the exports um, or the imports become more expensive, then there's less incentive to export like cheap coal or something like this. So is is there, do you see, or yeah, kind of have the sense, I guess, I guess this is how policy is made, right? What, what's the sense we have around the table here? But what, what um, uh, do you think that the, the role that renewables can play in the region could be picking up? Like an, like a, let me explain that more. Like a sincere um, uh, role that renewables can play, and not just like these waves as you described. I feel that um, maybe a lot of private investors see a point of see a, a business case in in the region for for large scale renewables, but I also think. Um, awareness among communities and citizens has increased considerably. So I I, I have a, a feeling that there is sincere interest from, from citizens, and I have seen it with my own eyes traveling to the region. The number of solar PVs on houses is increasing. Um, yeah, this this is the the bottom up, and this is kind of the organic uh, change that we're we're happy to see. But I don't think this this will force policies uh, fast enough to to drive the actual decarbonization in the region. And and indeed, this is where the the EU uh, comes into place and and has a role to play. Unfortunately, what what we've also witnessed 
you know, there, there's this quite a, a this this gap in how the European Commission the discourse on on gas, how it's centered for EU countries, and how much the the Commission is pursuing gas as a transition fuel in the Western Balkans, which is absolutely, it makes no sense. Half of the countries don't even have any gas infrastructure. So it would be like locking these countries into a fossil fuel that we they will need to transition again from in 10, 15 years maximum. So Kosovo, um, Montenegro, Albania, they, they don't have one single gas pipeline. And yet the, the commission um, is, is promoting gas as a transition fuel. So this is very, very disturbing um, to, to witness. And yeah, mm -hmm. and, it would and be where, one, where, one role. Uh -huh. where, where, where does the gas come from? <laughs> What's the source of the gas for the Balkans then? Well, Albania is on the end of the Southern Gas Corridor, which, as you know, comes from Azerbaijan. And <laughs> Look Oil is still one of the companies that is involved in that in in that project. So it's not even uh, it's mm -hmm. not even free of Russian gas or of Russian influence. Um, yeah, there's Turk Stream and um, basically interconnectors north macedonia is pursuing this gas interconnector with with greece who would get its gas via lng terminals so a lot of uh, new and costly and unreliable in the end fossil fuels the commission is is pushing towards the the western balkan countries and then maybe maybe that we can shift a little bit and I'll build on on this policy framing of gas uh, the commission put, pushing the gas but do you think that this and maybe you, you I don't know because everything is so recent so in one sense it's kind of hard to talk about the energy crisis and the geopolitical um changes or the changes due to the geopolitical situations and and Russia's war in Ukraine question is is what has been the impact on the energy, I would say, discussions about the future energy system because of the Russia's war in Ukraine? I think the countries were in the Western Balkans were heading towards an energy crisis even before Russia's invasion in Ukraine and before the war. Because paradoxically, the countries, as I said earlier, are not nearly as dependent as the EU is on, on gas. They were the countries were were hit hard by by prices of electricity, which the region also imports from the EU. So it's not just Bosnia and Montenegro exporting electricity to the EU. But countries do import a lot of electricity from the EU. They had to do this because of a of a series of technical problems at the coal power plants and and mines across the region, uh, particularly in in Serbia and North Macedonia and in Kosovo. So they increased the electricity import needs. And then to make things worse, 2022 was a very dry year, and it was it has prevented the region's hydropower plants. From, from making up for the coal plants being off. And it was it caused, for example, Albania to increase as it imports more than in previous years. One trouble is never on it never arrives on its own. Um, biomass prices were increased massively across the region. Some countries, I think, I think in both Bosnia and Serbia were um, imposing export bans because they, they needed this. So I think this was brewing even even before the war, and it was it was forcing the countries to make some to make decisions now that will determine what their energy systems or what their energy sectors would look like in the medium and long term. So I think the 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 war and the current crisis is it can be both. It can be a a serious 
threat to the energy transition and, and an opportunity. I mean, we've, we've seen, as I said, solar development and to some extent wind speeding up in Bosnia and in North Macedonia and in Serbia, but it has also revealed how unreliable the, the region's coal plants or coal fleet is. And somehow it's making the governments less willing to commit to phase out. Uh, you want to, I just want to like, um, maybe, yeah, for the outside listeners that maybe not too knowledgeable about the region, these things, it, they're hard to describe. It's always kind of shifting. And uh, from the outside, it's like, yeah, it totally makes sense. Because I actually, I think about a year ago, I did an interview with um, staff from IRENA, and they had made a model about how how much renewable could be used and really the whole region could be hundred percent renewable with biomass mm -hmm. solar, and wind and everything. So, so the numbers are totally there financially. It makes sense to do it, but it's this everyday politics and, you know, some external factors going in, into play, but also just internally and the political, political acceptance of renewables or other policies that need to be changed. And then it's kind of weird to, look from the outside and say well why don't you do that but internally right there's always these i don't know contradictions or that are accepted mm -hmm. um yeah why continue with coal if there's not even enough coal so um it yeah so so it's it, it in one sense it's hard to describe uh what's going on and then maybe the easy phrase to say is as well it's the balkans so and then in one sense kind of summarizes what I mean by that is it's a very complex region with these relationships like we talked about around the energy community, but also the selection of technologies and maybe different interest groups that control those technologies and the social relationships and political relationships as well. You mentioned earlier about attending an event and being involved in this um, coal transition forum for, for the region. And mm -hmm. could you describe a bit more? What is the dialogue about and what is it? How is it progressing about phasing out? And, and I'm particularly interested in understanding the communities that that are affected by the coal uh, phase out or a possible phase out of coal. Yeah, so this initiative is basically a sister initiative of the coal regions in transition in the EU, um, which, you know, in the EU, it started maybe in 2017, 2018, I don't remember anymore. But the, the big difference, I would say, is that rapidly in the EU, there was indication of a just transition fund and that, that communities would, these coal dependent regions would need to uh, come up with territorial just transition plans and come, come to a development model that they would see for themselves. So this kind of bottom-up um, design of, of policies and future for, for the communities. Um, so I think in the EU, this is going pretty well, um, at least from, from the, the stories I hear from my colleagues, uh, for example, in, in Slovakia or in, in Greece, and to some extent in, in Romania as well. In the Western Balkans, on the other hand, the coal, the coal regions are are paired with uh, some similar regions in EU countries, and they've been there. There have been exchange visits, so that's always very very helpful for local decision mayors, uh, mayors and local decision makers to kind of get inspiration for what they could do for their communities. Um, what is indeed missing maybe is this disconnect from the official state energy policy which as I said earlier in, in the case of Serbia or Bosnia there is no commitment to to a phase out so nothing to do no, nothing in the in the national level strategic documents gives any indication of that and then you have very progressive and forward-looking mayors in, in coal-dependent regions, which are like, they, they've prepared projects, they know what they have to do, and there's no funding. And this was maybe, yeah, one of the overarching arguments during this, this two-day meeting that I was attending in, in Brussels, that, you know, there, there needs to be dedicated funding for the just transition. We need to 
the, the local communities need to know how much they can rely on grants and on European and on public money and what comes from loans and you know what what sh how to shape their communities how much there is available and how big they can dream yeah this was for on the one hand for me it was refreshing to see such progressive uh, mayors in from the regions for example the the mayor in Zhivnice in Bosnia Herzegovina even to some extent the the mayor in Plevia in Montenegro and and representatives of Bitola municipality from North Macedonia these kind of energetic optimistic um leaders from from the ground and then a bit of a stagnation from the European Commission and its dedication to to support financially such such an effort because it, it will be a huge financial effort there's already been a huge decline like here in Romania but yeah spread that out throughout the region and then how to provide the social support and yeah economic support for the region so that yeah life doesn't get so bad for the people uh, living in these, mm -hmm. these places where what happens when that employer goes away I think that's one of the justifications for keeping the coal mines open but it's yeah in one sense it's not worth it uh, but it's finding the economic alternatives um, for the people to yeah mm -hmm. be able to have jobs and make a living so okay I, um, Iona I, I just want to maybe wrap this up but one of the last questions I have and, and I'm hoping I'm thinking this is a, is a positive question is what are what's like one or two of the successes that you've experienced while at Bankwatch in in the job that you're doing? Definitely, for me, when I when I just started the job, uh, it was the commitment of EU public banks, so the European Investment Bank and the EBRD, to get out of coal. And then recently, there was uh, the decision by the European Investment Bank to not support gas either. Um, so we're kind of hopeful that the next big step would be that the BRD doesn't support gas either, um, especially as it's uh, currently revising its energy strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow, that that is so. So I mean, because it's it's great to to reflect on this because you can see that things change and institutions change, and particularly since it's Bankwatch, the financing of these energy. Uh, technologies change as well. So if if the money's not there for coal, hopefully the if if the money's not there for gas, then hopefully the money goes towards renewables. Then I mean, the, mm -hmm. <laughs> so so then it just means more support for for renewables and finding the solutions, a variety of solutions. Right, it's not just one solution to to exactly yeah match it with the renewable energy. Iona, I just want to thank you so much for your time to discuss these issues today. Thank you for coming onto the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. And remember, each episode is equivalent to consuming 10 journal articles, one book, and 500 charts on how to implement the energy transition. And you get it all in less, usually, than 60 minutes for each podcast. Guaranteed. I can actually say no other podcast makes this guarantee. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are most active, on the My Energy 2050 page, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. <laughs>